Are you ready for good talk? And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here, Chantelle Bear, Bruce Anderson are with me as well. It's uh, another good day for good talk as we approach the end of yet another week. Um, all right, I want to start uh, with something that we kind of touched on last week, but Chantelle you know, made a good point. She said NDP are going to vote with the Conservatives on Monday of this week, this past Monday. Uh, but don't don't assume the bloc is going to as well. And this will, you know, make it survival for the Liberals through that vote, which is exactly what happened. Uh, but ever since that day, there's been a push, it seems, each day from the NDP uh, on some of the things they want to see accomplished because of their deal with the Liberals. And there's a growing feeling, I guess you could say, that they are pushing the boundaries of this and that they just may say, you know what, we're out of here. We're not into this deal anymore. We may cancel a deal. How much of a real threat is that? Chantel? Actually, the suggestion that the NDP would want to cancel the deal uh, or would be thinking about it and it would be really fragile seems to mostly come from uh, outside the NDP ranks uh, and from commentators who maybe are, like all of us, itching to have a federal election and are looking for a bit of drama. But I think with this week's vote demonstrated, uh, the one on uh, on climate, uh, is that the NDP has a lot to lose in this parliament by walking away from that pact for First reason, it does not hold uh, exclusively the balance of power, as we saw this week. The bloc also holds it. Uh, and if François Blanchet is not going to be um, rushed into an election just because uh, the NDP suddenly wants to walk away. So if the NDP left the pact, it would go back to its fourth party status with more or less influence, but certainly not the kind of leverage that it currently has on the liberals. I also don't believe that the liberals are all that sensitive to the assertion by the conservatives that they're now in league with the separatists. It's very hard for many people uh, who are in good faith to believe that the Trudeau would actually be working towards separation. Uh, I don't know. It only takes a bit of history to know that that's not the case. But the other thing is, this week, the, the NDP secured something that both the Bloc and the NDP had been trying to get for, in the case of the NDP, decades in the shape of this uh, legislation to ban replacement workers uh, when there are strikes. That, which we call anti-scab legislation, has been on the books in Quebec for decades. Uh, but it does not apply to uh, enterprises that are regulated by the federal government, banks, et cetera, et cetera. And the NDP had tried to get this extended to all of Canada. It's been one of those iconic uh, cases that the la big labor, uh, the union movement has been pushing for. And they got it this week. And it is a result of that pact with the liberals. So as long as uh, Mr. Singh can show progress uh, on signature issues, and this is a signature issue, and at the same time, maybe score a bit of a goal in the net of uh, Pierre Poilier, who's been trying to get the workers' votes. Uh, it, I, it is really hard to make a case that the NDP, with the polls looking the way they look for the party, should say, oh, I'm going to do myself a good service. I'm going to precipitate what may be an election that will result in a majority conservative government that won't give me the time of day. Bruce, your thought on this? I'm reminded that when I was younger, I used to follow boxing. I don't know if if either of the two of you followed boxing, but in heavyweight boxing and even, you know, a rank down, there was always this syndrome of somebody would be uh, catching fire as a boxer, winning fights, and they'd be moving up the ranks, and then they'd want to fight the number one boxer. Um and then it was always this dance. And sometimes it would take two or three years for a fight to be arranged because everybody was kind of measuring their downside. What if the, you know, the up and comer wasn't quite ready uh, and needed to do a couple more fights to put a little bit more money in the bank? What if the reigning champion 
was vulnerable and and needed to train more. There was always kind of more conversation about wouldn't it be great if this fight would happen? Because people want the drama, people wanted the uh, experience of seeing that competition, and it is a little bit like that in politics. Where right now, I think you have a situation where, to Chantal's point, there's only one party in the house that could feel confident that the outcome of an election would be more seats for them. Just one, the Conservatives. In that scenario, what is the momentum behind any of the other parties deciding that they, I mean, if they were deeply aggrieved by something, some federal transgression into provincial affairs uh, in Quebec, yeah, that can happen. But this is not a government that's going to make those kinds of mistakes, I don't think. They'll make Mistakes. We've talked about that a lot, but I don't think they're going to make that kind of mistake. There are some bumps in the road ahead on the relationship between the Liberals and the NDP. Pharmacare is clearly one. Uh, there, there hardly a day goes by that there aren't warning shots uh, issued by the NDP uh, and signals by the Liberals that the cost of government, the cost to taxpayers, the size of government, the scale of government is a concern for them. And that's what's going on around that issue. Um, And I could have imagined that the debate about carbon pricing and the changes that the government announced could have been a flashpoint uh, that could create a rupture in that relationship. But as I look back on the days that have passed since then, that probably would have been me imagining the prospect of that heavyweight fight rather than the math really looking like it could produce that. Because at the end of the day, the NDP walked away from the opportunity to turn that into a more uh, explosive political issue. And they didn't do that by mistake. They did it by calculation. They said, we want to live to fight another day, to fight many more days, to be able to talk about many more initiatives that we work on with this government, because we don't see uh, a scenario where... um, we come out of an election now with more seats necessarily. I wouldn't say that that holds in perpetuity. I think the X factor really is Justin Trudeau and whether or not his popularity um, starts to rise again, whether it deteriorates further, uh, whether there seems to be more turmoil in the Liberal Party. Those are factors that could affect that calculation on the part of the NDP, but that isn't happening yet, I don't think. Let me... um, Let me ask it from a, a different angle. Uh, Chantel, you said there's there's no apparent pressure from within that NDP caucus uh, to pull the plug on the deal. How about the party as a whole? Because did we not see at their recent convention, whenever that was, time, time plays tricks on us uh, uh, this fall, it's been crazy, but it, it was only a month or two months ago. There seemed to be some uh, unrest within the party, the broader party, about the deal, what they were getting out of it. And I'm wondering whether this push to get more out of it now is as a result of that convention or whether uh, the caucus just feels very differently than general party membership. Uh, I'm not sure that people who attend the convention always speak for general party conventions, uh, members in the sense that the um, Parties are are, are are animals that uh, have various body parts, and those that attend conventions are the body parts that are really more into ideology than those who are sympathetic to the party and still members of the party. So I am not convinced that if you did a plebiscite of NDP members as opposed to a convention, you would get a massive vote to walk away from that pact. Uh, of course, uh, what you also saw at the NDP convention was what I call the uh, the, 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 the fumes effect. People walk into a convention and everything becomes possible. Reality takes the backseat to the feeling that you're all together and you'll win an election because you're the good guys. Once you go back out in the cold, reality is not changed and you're still in fourth position. So I... I don't, I'm not noticing that uh, voices of influence are publicly calling on Jagmeet Singh to walk away from this deal. I also believe that among the voices of influence, there are NDP premiers. And those two NDP premiers and NDP leaders, like Rachel Notley in Alberta, to name just her, 
had a tremendous amount of influence on the NDP voting with the conservatives earlier this week because they were asking for the suspension of the carbon tax on heating oil to be extended to all forms of heating this winter. Uh, and, it would, and the NDP federally doesn't like to be at odds with provincial wings, especially on an issue that is so bread and butterish. But I, I'm like Bruce, I don't see that there is a smart, or there would have been a smart calculation in using that as a step to walk away from the pact because there are many NDP members who are also concerned about climate change and the notion that this sends a message that the NDP is not only on the same page as the conservatives on heating costs, but it could also be on the same page as a conservative government in dismantling the climate policy that the liberals have put in place. That's dangerous uh, for the NDP. It opens them to liberal attacks. It actually restores some of the liberal edge on the NDP if it goes to that. So I, I think they could only vote and then back off, which they did the next day by saying, let's just take out the GST, their initial position, which was more in line with what they'd been saying all along. But I think they're happy enough to just walk away from this. I also believe that for labor unions, um, what happened with this anti-scab legislation is a major tool in the sense that Pierre Poilievre is going in an election with baggage on the union front. The previous conservative government had some pretty aggressive legislation on the books to restrain and clip the wings of unions. Uh, and, and this legislation allows the NDP and the liberals to bring that back on the radar. There are many working people who are union members who will take that baggage into consideration before they switch to the conservatives. And as you say, as we've said a number of times the past few months, um, Paul Yev especially has been working hard at that union vote, uh, trying to attract it. So this, whether this has an impact on that or not, you'd assume it probably would, uh, but who knows. Bruce, did you want to pick up on that point? Well, I did, but I was hoping that Chantal would forget the last point that she made because then I was going <laughs> to have an opportunity to say it. <laughs> But I so I'll uh, I'll just applaud her perspicacity in making that point. But I think of the NDP as having kind of three layers to it. There's the leadership, which is responsible for figuring out how to make things happen in in government and and win election campaigns or succeed in election campaigns. There's the activists who tend to be the people who go to the conventions and and are highly visible and uh, and speak out on behalf of the party. And then there's the NDP voter. And I think those are all three different kind of uh, uh, species right now. If I'm at the leadership level, I'm as worried about uh, voters wandering to the conservatives as I am about them wandering to the liberals, which would have been in the last couple of elections, the bigger worry. And it may be, again, if the liberals kind of, you know, find some, some chemistry again uh, with those voters, you'd have, if you were the leadership, a, a two-front uh, war, you know, defending your uh, voters from drifting to the conservative, uh, to the liberals to avoid a Polyev government and some others drifting to Polyev because he sounds more populist and in line with the day-to-day -day priorities that they have. You know, then if you think about the activists, they tend to be the people who push the hardest for ideas like single-payer pharmacare, which doesn't really have as much traction in based on my work um, with the rank and file, most of whom are in unions that have uh, group insurance plans and don't see a material benefit from uh, the idea that the NDP are, are proposing. Uh, so I think if you're the leadership, you want to be really careful to, um, to overestimate the vulnerability of others and the appeal that you might have to their voters and be more cautious about the fact that you could end up in a situation where you're bleeding to the right and bleeding to the center um, and uh, and you don't have the same sense of agenda uh, that you might have found it easier to conjure up in the past because people these days, and I've got some data coming out in the next little while, we're asked voters, what kind of government do you want in Canada? Do you want one with big, bold ambition or small set of practical priorities? And people say small set of practical priorities, including NDP voters. It is a gutted out, do the work, uh, 
don't get out in front of your skis so much uh, kind of uh, mindset that exists out there now. If the NDP isn't feeling, or Singh in particular, isn't feeling pressure at the moment uh, in, in terms of abandoning, abandoning the deal, how much pressure is there on the Liberals and, and, and Trudeau, uh, especially in terms of the arrangement with the NDP? Is there a pressure that uh, they're running the risk of, you know, giving away the farm to keep them in the tent? Or does it all come to a head on the pharmacare issue uh, because of the expected cost of that, um, as well as other points on a pharmacare program? Um, pressure on the Liberals, Chantal? Up to a point, uh, yes, and it's going to be interesting to see how uh, the, the week after the break, there's a break next week. So the week after will be the, the fiscal update that uh, Minister Freeland has to deliver. She will not have good news on the front of the deficit. It's going to be significantly higher than forecast last April. Uh, but somewhere in, in that, there are four weeks left when they come back on the 20th. So something somewhere on pharmacare will have to be seen, and it's going to have to jibe, and that, that's the challenge to the liberals with the tone of the fiscal update. You're not 2015 is not coming back. There, this is not a time when the public will be receptive to the idea of a, a larger deficit. Just as you're telling them, it keeps going up. I suspect that the groundwork is being laid for the NDP to accept less uh, rather than more when it comes to the farmer care bill. Possibly, there are so many variations, as you know, uh, to anything that is a new program or a new initiative in the sense that you can craft it around provincial buy-in, for instance, which in this case would be very, very low. Quebec, Ontario, Alberta, are not buying into a national pharmacare program at this point. There, there is no interest on the part of those three governments. I am not convinced that BC, with an NDP government, is all that enthusiastic. So it, it, there are ways to do things that uh, leave it to others to keep it very modest. But this is up for negotiations. I, Like Bruce, I don't believe that the NDP has a winning issue. Uh, in walking away from the pact on this issue of pharmacare, uh, not if it's going to deliver them a majority conservative government that will never mouth the words pharmacare for four years. So it, I, it's if I had to pick an issue and I were the NDP, I, I would wait to see if there is one because they don't have one at this point. Uh, every issue they've tried, affordability, uh, groceries, etc., it's there, but it's steeper. And and if you look at, you know, I was listening to Bruce talking about the danger of losing votes to the conservatives and votes to the liberals. The only reason that did not happen in 2011 when Stephen Harper was on the way to a majority government was because of what was happening in Quebec and the sense for NDP voters outside Quebec that maybe the NDP was on a roll. So in Ontario, the Liberals actually lost votes to the Conservatives and the NDP. But there are many things I would never bet on. But one thing I think I can bet a small amount of money on is on Jokmeet Singh not on the way to an orange wave in Quebec in any election anytime soon. Bruce, you get the last word on this topic before we take our first break. Well, look, I, I think the Liberals do feel some pressure, but I don't think they feel it specifically about the NDP as much as they do um, this combination of uh, do we do we have an agenda that we think is compelling enough to the average voter who's kind of drifted away from us, most of whom have drifted away to uh, Pierre Polyev at this point. Uh, and I don't think they know what that is. And I don't think they quite know how to, to fashion one that would draw those voters back without losing some of the voters who form uh, the left side of their their coalition. Uh, and inside their caucus, inside their cabinet, they have a lot of people who are very dialed into um, the real progressive bona fides, and they have others who are worried that they're going to lose their seats to 
conservatives because of the size of the deficit, not so much the number, but the sense that this government doesn't take it seriously enough and and always wants to spend more money on on any idea that comes along. So that tension is the real pressure that I think the Liberals and Justin Trudeau are feeling right now. I don't think they're feeling it so much from the standpoint of will the NDP drop us uh, and cause an election. And I think they shouldn't worry about that, at least not in the imminent future, and certainly not on pharmacare. I think if we just stop for a minute and imagine that day when Jagmeet Singh stands in front of a bank of microphones on Parliament Hill and says, I needed to have this election because Canadians need to decide that we want single-payer pharmacare. Just think about that. That that won't happen uh, because it won't make any sense to anybody uh, that it should happen, I don't think, Um, anybody at that leadership level within the NDP. So I don't think that they should feel that kind of pressure. Uh, at least that's that's how I would do the math now. All right. Um, I said I wanted to get to our first break, but I, I'm going to ask one extra question on this. Uh, and it's this. You know, we don't know how this is going to end, this agreement between the NDP and the Liberals. We don't know how it's going to end, when it's going to end. Uh, but at this point in history, because eventually in history, people will judge this agreement, who it was best for, what was accomplished, all of that. At this point in history, what's the verdict on that? Well, for the NDP, it's hard to see that it it was anything but a win-win. Why do I say that? Because uh, until that deal came about, the NDP in fourth place, without even the balance of power, was kind of a fifth wheel in, in the current parliament with little choice but to support uh, on an item-by-item basis the Liberals, for the most part, um, because there was no appetite in the country for an election, uh, and they had no prospects for improvement in an election. So it gave them some a, a lot more relevance in this parliament than Thomas Mulcair ever had in official opposition facing a majority conservative government. From the Liberals' perspective, uh, I think we'll have to say time will tell whether it will have made the Liberals friendly enough for the NDP to mobilize, NDP voters, I don't mean the party, to mobilize behind the Liberals um, in the face of a possible conservative majority. But, I mean, it's... There is, there was some logic to making that pact for Justin Trudeau. I don't think he needed it in the way that uh, uh, it was presented. But I'm always reminded when I look at those agreements that um, when Bob Ray and David Peterson, because they were kind of the people who who started this off on this path in 1985 when they made the deal. Uh, had a list of things that uh, the Liberals with Peterson would accomplish, and the NDP would support the Liberals for two years. Uh, And so they did. And Peterson was rewarded for that at first uh, with a majority government in 87. But I don't believe that there would ever have been an NDP government in Ontario had there not been that experience of the NDP participating in government over those two years. And in 1990, the NDP did get a shot at power uh, under the same leader who had made that deal. Back then, it was Bob Ray. So I, I think the experience for the NDP has been positive in another way in that it has brought its caucus to the governing table and forced them to consider the compromises that come with the exercise of power. And in the future, it may lead to an NDP platform that is a bit different uh, but maybe more attractive to middle of the road voters who will say, well, you know, they governed uh, in support of the liberals and they weren't so crazy. Okay. We'll see. Yeah, I think it's unquestionably been a, a, a success for the progressive voters who support the liberals or the NDP. Uh, I think that um, I tend to always kind of look at the the broader public opinion numbers and find consistently that 60 to 65% of Canadians identify as progressives, uh, the rest as conservatives, small c, uh, small p. And 
the challenge for a lot of progressives in many instances over the Harper years, for example, has been, well, how do we have more progressive voters who want more progressive policies, but we don't get them because of the outcome of our first past the post system? So this is not a an argument that this is a better substitute for those who favor uh, a change in our electoral system, but it is a way in which our system produced results from a policy standpoint that were more aligned with the broad mass of progressive voters. And so I think from that standpoint, for sure, it was successful. It was successful for the Liberals so far because it allowed them uh, a plenty of room to run a forward with the initiatives that they cared about and very, very little uh, that they had to do that would have been distasteful to them. In fact, I'm struggling to think of what those things might have been. Uh, other than for some members of the cabinet and caucus probably spending more money um, than they than they might have otherwise done. The challenge, though, and this is the this is where I don't know if if you would look at it as a success, is that I think sometimes the scale of government ambition and announcements uh, and movement on different policies. Uh, combined with the attention deficit of the public right now, because we're all looking in 20,000 different ways, means fewer people are aware of the things that the government has done in cooperation with the NDP than might have been hoped for by either the NDP or the Liberals. And so you have this chemistry now where people are saying, I'm kind of tired of them, um, or I'm tired of this configuration. Um but they're not really asking themselves the hard question about, but did I get something out of this? And would I get more out of a continuation of this kind of thing than a, a, a switch to another party? That thought process, I don't think has really worked out that well uh, for the liberals. And maybe part of that is just the the vagaries of politics. If you're, if you're in charge for too long, people just grow tired listening to you. Maybe it's partly the way in which the government has, has, kind of chewed up a lot of bandwidth with so many different things that people can't keep track of them. All right. I'm going to take that break. When we come back, we're going to talk Mark Carney talk. That's right after this. And welcome back. You're listening to uh, the Bridge Friday episode, which of course is good talk. Chantel and Bruce are here. You're listening on Sirius uh, 167, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform, or you're watching us on our uh, YouTube channel where the numbers just keep going up, which is pretty nice. We're glad that uh, whatever platform you choose to w- watch or listen to us, that you're there. Um, all right, here's the, uh, the next topic, the second topic for today. Uh, it's about Mark Carney, who a little more than a week ago, I answered a question with the Globe and Mail saying that, you know, there could be a day where he'd be interested in running for the Liberal leadership. And, of course, that set off a lot of discussion, a lot of talk, whether he intended for that or not, I don't know. One assumes he must have realized that people would be talking, and they have been talking for the last week. Here's my question about this, and Bruce, I'm going to ask you to start us off on this. Uh, My question about Mark Carney is, if Mark Carney is somebody who would be valued uh, by the Liberal Party as an MP, as a cabinet minister, as a potential future leader somewhere down the road, why doesn't Justin Trudeau, who is, if you believe the polls, in serious trouble, why doesn't he bring this guy into the party now? Uh, get him to run in a by-election, put him in the cabinet. Uh, in a senior position that could have some influence. Why has that not happened? You're asking me to read the mind of Justin Trudeau on this. I I can't speak for Justin Trudeau as to why, do why you, that has Why do you happened. think? Why do you, you think? You're supposed to there? read his mind. Yes, please. So we're <laughs> waiting, bated breath, everything. Go ahead. <laughs> Give right. it a try. What 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 do you think is the reason? he's not been invited in yet or you know maybe he has and he's turned it down i don't know yeah but does it not seem like something you'd want to do 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think any any party um, needs to be on the lookout for people of the skills and and uh, qualifications and energy level of Mark Carney. We need more people of that caliber to run towards politics. And we these days mostly see people of of great accomplishment or significant accomplishment kind of wandering away, saying it doesn't feel like a way to spend a significant chunk of your life. And I quite understand that. So I'm um, a very big advocate of wanting to see Mark Carney be in politics. And uh, so I'm, I'm happy that he's, he's willing to consider it at some point in the future for Justin Trudeau. um, I don't know what he thinks about it, but if I were him, I would want to have Mark Carney um, by my side on the team, helping contribute ideas uh, helping contribute um, some thinking based on his expertise and understanding markets and understanding the world, and also uh, you know he has a um, he has an understanding of Canada coming from different uh, living in different parts of Canada uh, that I think is valuable as well. But mostly, I think it's just that we're talking about somebody who's really smart, who's really capable, who's got some energy and a desire to do some public service potentially, and. And the government would be wise to uh, to welcome him uh, into that uh, endeavor. Well, those are all reasons why he should. What would be a reason why he shouldn't? Well, there are a variety of reasons that you're going to hear. And like Bruce, I don't read Justin Trudeau's mind, but I have heard reasons, pros and cons. One reason that uh, comes up in conversations, uh, not with the PMO, so let's make that clear, is... Uh, well, why would Justin Trudeau want him, uh, considering that he wants Justin Trudeau's job? But that's kind of a fake argument, because if Justin Trudeau were thinking in those terms, he would be forgetting recent history when Jean Chrétien totally used Paul Martin to secure that third majority and do better in the popular vote in Quebec than the Bloc Québécois in this last election. How did he do that? By Putting Paul Martin front and center in every commercial, you would have believed that both uh, were the best friends in the world, walking shoulder to shoulder in those shots, which, of course, they were not. Uh, and we know what happened afterwards. But if you're the prime minister and and you have an asset, do you want to use that asset? You don't start thinking about what's going to happen uh, if this guy takes your job because voters can take away your job and this guy can help you keep that job. So that's one reason. Another that I, I hear about from other quarters is that if Mark Carney were to come in, the only thing that makes sense would be for him to come in at finance. Otherwise, it's just adding another green plant, a nice green plant, to the green plants that sit around the cabinet table. And it's not enough to say Mark Carney is at the table. If anyone wants advice from Mark Carney in government, he doesn't need to go sit there and play nice when the prime minister is giving a news conference uh, as part of the background. That opens two debates. The first is, what does Kirsty Freeland think about this? Does she want uh, really to stick around? Does she like being a finance minister? Uh, if not, is there a, an easy way to ease her out of finance and put Mark Carney in her place? She seemed to enjoy foreign affairs uh, a lot more than she does finance, frankly. But if you're Justin Trudeau, do you want to look like you're the person who pushed out the first female federal finance minister in favor of a white guy from uh, some business place, as qualified as he may be? So the optics matter, and what Ms. Freeland thinks about this uh, also matters. And then there's the third issue that the others raise, and it's a valid point. We tried the uh, let's have a finance minister who's never sat for a day in the House of Commons on his first day on the job. The name of that person was Bill Morneau. And what that experience demonstrated is that there is a learning curve. You, you, if you, Mr. By the way, if Mr. Carney wants to be prime minister, one would think that he might want to consider getting himself some political experience on the way there. So... Uh, are you going to gamble on Mark Kearney becoming the finance minister? What if he becomes another Morno? There are already, you can see the attacks coming. I saw stuff on social media saying, well, he's a British citizen. He did 
uh, go through that process to be the governor of the bank and the central bank in the UK. So, uh, but all this w- does not tell you what you really want to know, which is why is Justin Trudeau not doing it? Uh, and I don't think that uh, Bruce or I can answer that question, but maybe we should give Trudeau a call. <laughs> we should mention he's, he still has a Canadian citizenship too. I mean, he has dual he passports does. like uh, a lot of us do. Um, let me, um, you know, another theory that was thrown out during the week, and you, you tell me, I'm not sure where I stand on it because everything's different, times are different. But when Pearson was prime minister in 65, and they were getting towards an election. He convinced a number of people, the three wise men from Quebec, of which Trudeau the Elder was one, to run. And it wasn't to run as a prime minister. It was to run as, you know, if you win, he almost certainly was going to go into a cabinet, and which he did, and gave him three years of experience. Pearson then eventually resigned. There was a leadership convention. Trudeau had the experience and ran and won. Um. So people were saying, well, you know, what about that argument? You know, Justin Trudeau's own father got in this way. Now, I know this was 50, 60 years ago, but isn't it, is it in any way an argument in favor of doing this? Bruce? Well, I, I think that, I do think that it is part of the responsibility of a leader to imagine what his what succession looks like uh, for their party. I don't think that leaders, as often as might be ideal, think about that in depth early on, uh, or even, I would say, early enough. Uh, So sometimes it comes down to, uh, you know, and and for me, the most famous uh, example of that was Brian Mulrooney, you know, he put a finger on the scale for Kim Campbell uh, instead of Jean Charest. And I think that he might dispute this, but I think that by the time that vote was held, he might have wondered whether he'd done the right thing. And quite possibly after that election, where the Conservative Party was reduced to two seats, it, it wouldn't have only been him that wondered whether or not he did the right thing. Um, did he do it too late? Probably. Um, did he do it too hastily? Possibly, probably, maybe. Um, so I think there are some lessons in the past that should condition how leaders think about this, but the most important one being that they should think about it, that they should understand that they have a custodial responsibility to the to the party that they lead, and they should think about it somewhat. Whether it goes to the point of, um, I should know who my logical successor is, I don't know. I think that's actually not that healthy. Uh, I do think it is important to cultivate a field of candidates, to imagine that there should be a field of candidates, that you're developing talent. Um, You're talking about Carney, and I I was listening to that podcast that he did with the Rory Stewart and Alistair Campbell, um, which is a great podcast if people want to listen to one. And he was talking about- You mean aside from this one? It's, it's it's comparable in terms of the quality, I think, <laughs> but a much bigger audience. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and so Carney at one point was asked about his role as the governor of the Bank of England. And what was that like? He was talking about how it, there was a management responsibility uh, in addition to the kind of the monetary policy role. And he said, leaders are there to develop people. And I think that is an important part of leadership. And I think it's a, I think it's something that, uh, that Justin Trudeau uh, must obviously think about as he thinks about who would be his candidates in the next election campaign and what kind of field of uh, competitors there might be. Uh, but, you know, it's rare that leaders actually do spend as much time on that. And sometimes it just turns into a bit of a free-for-all and a bit of a disappointment, those leadership races. I, I hope this won't be one, and I hope it um, – I hope this won't be one. Let, let me leave it there. <laughs> if you bring Mark Carney in at this point, you, you're doing two things that are collateral. The first one is Mark Carney's advantage by now is that he's not associated with this government. And that's become uh, an advantage rather than a liability. But the other one is bring in Mark Carney. And what you are doing is uh, creating an internal, unofficial leadership battle inside the cabinet and inside caucus. Because 
even if Mark Carney came with pure intentions, I just want to help the country and I'm happy enough to bide my time and learn the ropes of politics. No one else is going to believe that inside caucus and no one with leadership ambitions is going to believe that and you know what happens then it's a chain reaction if if they're all organizing for war against you you organize for war he has said publicly that he's not ruling out a run at the leadership so it's not as if um, he was looking for a public service mission only uh, if he ever says yes to this so i am with bruce it's a good idea to have people interesting on the roster, but I'm not sure that leaders are comfortable with the notion that they're running someone um, with the subtext that if you vote them back in office, it's because they will be expected to resign so that that someone replaces them. It's Maybe it's a bit late in the game to, to think about uh, strengthening cabinet uh, in a way that becomes um, that this guy is going to be seen as the person who should be sitting in your seat not too much, uh, not soon after the election, whatever its result. There's a there's one other point I wanted to make, which is that, you know, it's a bit of an occupational hazard for those of us who do what we're doing right now to want to see somebody swing for the fences and do it now. Um, and <laughs> because we want that action, uh, drama that Chantal mentioned, it's there's an impatience to the conversation that's logical because here we are, it's Friday, and we're having our kind of impatient for improve, improvements <laughs> conversation. But if you're on the other side, uh, if you're in government, there are a lot of moving parts. There are things that always take longer. Uh, and and often should take longer. I've seen situations just in the last six months that, from my standpoint, initiatives that this government took, which seemed too hasty, not because they shouldn't have done them, but because they might have worked through some of the challenges with them a little bit more before they did. And why do they do that? It's probably in significant measure because people are doing what we're doing, which is saying, now, 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 fix the problem, now, 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 now. Um, and so your question about uh, Mark Carney and what should Trudeau do and why hasn't he done it has a little bit of that flavoring for me, which is that maybe it will happen, maybe it won't happen. But the urgency that we associate with any of these kinds of things is different from the way and the pace in which people in government can actually move. And that's probably a healthy thing in many respects. All right. Last quick point on this. Do the good possibilities outweigh the bad possibilities of bringing him in? Because you both, I think the good, the good outweigh the bad. There is no contest. Uh, and if Mark Carney was looking to run for Pierre Poilievre, I would be saying the same thing about uh, Mark Carney running for office because we should want. Um, the best and brightest to be in politics and not sitting on the sidelines being used as fodder for a Friday uh, morning podcast. It's, <laughs> uh, we would all be better served with Mark Carney in the ring than Mark Carney as the kind of um, go-to topic uh, to keep people listening to us. Listen, if he was in the ring, don't you think we'd... <laughs> We'd be yes. taking runs but back he, and forth at him as well. But, but he would have a day job doing stuff for the country, <laughs> not just feeding us with speculation as to what will happen to him over the next 10 years. Bruce, you get the final word. No, I think that's right. I think that, you know, our impatience is entertaining to us, but it's not the way that government should operate or that leaders should make decisions uh, in every instance. And it's probably, if we could post a little kind of a warning, don't take all of this too seriously. <laughs> it would be a good idea to do it sometimes. <laughs> oh, you don't want to say that. I remember uh, a, a mutual <laughs> friend of ours, I won't name, who used to host one of those uh, every evening political talk shows. And I would go on it a couple of times and... Um, and this interviewer would say, this host would say, you know, Bruce, is this thing that just happened? Is this the end of it all? Whatever it all was. <laughs> and, you know, is public opinion just going to crater now? And I would say, no, no, it's not. 
And then the next week it would be the same thing. And eventually I wasn't going on the show very much because my answer too often was, no, it's that's not going to work that way. It shouldn't. Uh, yes. As the, as the world turns, the wheel turns, it, uh, it's funny how on, on Friday, you can't even remember what the last Friday's crisis was. Um, although lately, uh, last month or two, uh, there have been some uh, blockbusters. Okay. We're going to let uh, you two go early this week. We appreciate, uh, the time. I've got a couple of things I have to clean up after the final break. Uh, so for the last uh, couple of minutes of the program, that's uh, that's what we'll do. But for Chantel and Bruce, it's uh, been great, as it always is, and we look forward to talking to you again next week. Back right after this. Good to this. see you both. Yep. Take care. Back Salut. after this. Bye-bye. And back for the uh, final segment of a good talk for this week. And uh, a couple of things that, I, that I've, I've got to pick up on. Yesterday, we had a very successful program on um, Remembrance Day. Your thoughts. It was a your turn. And it was kind of your thoughts and your family remembrances about, about Remembrance Day and about uh, relatives who may have been in one of the great conflicts of the last hundred or so years, whether it was the First World War, the Second World War, Korea, uh, Afghanistan, you name it, they were all kind of there. And there were some quite wonderful uh, letters, extremely thoughtful, some were quite emotional, and I've heard from a lot of you uh, since about how much you enjoyed the program. Um, However, there was one letter that appears that it totally sucked me in. It was a con job uh, from all appearances. Uh, It was a a letter, you may recall it, about the gold watch and how um, this watch should be handed down from uh, a great-grandfather to uh, what was the grandfather of the letter writer and then the father through the First World War, the Second World War, Vietnam, this letter came from the States, um, and how it was now in the hands of the letter writer. And it had been saved through all of this uh, time. And it was, you know, it was a very moving letter. Now, I call it a con job. Well, con me, it appears. Because the letter was almost word for word to the dialogue in the movie Pulp Fiction, in one particular scene that Christopher Walken was in. And one of our loyal listeners uh, wrote in to say, hey, Peter, this is like word for word, and included the clip from the movie. And yeah, it was pretty much word to word. Now, you know, you know, I have a lot of faith in um, all of you who write in, and that's, you know, I, I ask for your name and where you're writing from for a number of different reasons. Um, but here, this one appears to have kind of sucked me in. I'm prepared to say it didn't um, if the person writes in and explains how it just is an absolute coincidence that it's almost word for word from the dialogue of Pulp Fiction. Uh, however, here, here's my feeling about it. On any other subject, I would have kind of just laughed and said, you know what, I got taken. But the fact is, this is a very you know, important topic. And people were sharing some of their deepest thoughts and emotions about Remembrance Day and about what it meant to their family. Um, and somebody tried to take advantage of it by... I don't know. Was it a joke? Was it a trick? What was it? Anyway, I didn't find it funny when I realized what had happened. I found it kind of, well, sick in a way. But I needed to uh, share it with you uh, just to let you know what had happened. Uh, The other two quick points. Tomorrow is Remembrance Day. Um... And I hope you find a moment to share it. I'm still in the UK coming back to Canada next week. These are the UK poppies, if you're watching on YouTube. They're paper. 
environmental this year. They've uh, they've gone for paper poppies. Um, but uh, I tell a story at the beginning of the newsletter, my new newsletter that's been coming out for a month or so now. And if you want to subscribe to it, it costs nothing. It's delivered every Saturday morning, 7 o'clock Eastern time to your inbox. Uh, it's not long. It's just some of the stories that I've found interesting during the past week, plus a few of my own anecdotes to go along with it. So uh, you can get the newsletter um, by going to nationalnewswatch.com. Okay, nationalnewswatch.com slash newsletter. Or just go to nationalnewswatch.com and you'll see at the bottom of the screen, subscribe to the Mansbridge newsletter. Uh, so that's how you do it. Just push that. Do it tonight and you'll get tomorrow's. If you wait until tomorrow, you won't get the first one until next week. Um, so there you go on the newsletter. And one other thing <laughs> to, to let you know, um, my new book written with Mark Bulgich, my good colleague and friend for the last 40 years. We wrote Extraordinary Canadians together a few years ago and this one called How Canada Works, is is kind of a similar nature, but it's different. Um, and it comes out a week from Tuesday. And so Mark's going to be on the show in the next week or so, and we're going to talk about it. Then I'm going on a book tour. And if you want to know where I'm going, where you, if you want to come by, you know, listen to a short talk, maybe get the book signed if, if you have a copy. Um, if you want to see where I'm going, Go to my website, thepetermansbridge.com, thepetermansbridge.com, and you'll see the book tour where which uh, cities and towns that I'm going to. Uh, that'll be starting November 30th. But the book is actually released on November 21st, so lots of time for you to go out and buy a copy if you don't buy one at the site of uh, the book tour. If you get a uh, chance to come along, that'd be great to meet you and to uh, sign some books, have a short chat. So there we go. That's it for Good Talk for this week. And I actually got to take a few minutes away from Bruce and Chantel. <laughs> that doesn't happen often, and I'm sure I'll hear about it. <laughs> but thanks for listening. It's been great to uh, talk to you all this week, and we'll be back at it again on Monday. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Have a great weekend. Mm -hmm.